Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 32 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. You drop the kids off at school at nine in the morning. The next six hours of their day are spent in the care of trustworthy professionals. The majority of the time they are safe in the hands of their tutors. It's a rare occasion when the friendly teacher isn't the honourable person they appear to be. Teacher and axe murderer are words you will seldom hear together, though there are at least three instances in the UK where a teacher has wielded an axe or a hatchet, intent on committing murder. A teacher that twice survived severe injuries while serving in the army during World War One was ordered to be detained as a criminal lunatic at Shrewsbury Assizes. David Llewellyn, a 45-year-old English teacher at Ludlow Grammar School in Shropshire, was found guilty of intent to cause grievous bodily harm and attempted suicide after he attacked his wife and stepdaughter with an axe. Florence Llewellyn told the court that on April 18, 1938, she, her husband and her daughter Ursula Hotchkiss went out for the evening. When they returned home, the mood in the household was relaxed. Florence went to bed about 10 o'clock 
but was woken in the early hours of the morning by a painful blow to the head. She opened her eyes and saw her husband holding an axe. She sprang to her feet, but David Llewellyn was already leaving the bedroom and heading towards his stepdaughter's room. With blood pouring down her face, Florence managed to catch up with her husband and tried to stop him getting to Ursula. By the time the tussling couple entered the teenager's bedroom, Ursula was awake and on her feet. She noticed her stepfather was firmly gripping an axe and her mother was covered in blood with a deep cut to her head. Both mother and daughter struggled with David, eventually disarming him, and dressed in only pyjamas, Ursula ran barefoot to the local police station. As police rushed to the scene, David Llewellyn attempted to commit suicide by inhaling gas, though he was stopped before he could carry out the act. He was assessed by two independent doctors who recognised that he was suffering from a mental illness and did not appreciate the gravity of what he had done. Though guilty of intent to cause grievous bodily harm, he was found not guilty of feloniously wounding his wife with intent to murder and found not guilty of feloniously wounding his stepdaughter. He had been suffering with depression since he came home from the war. Bertha Mary Gunn, a 36-year-old teacher, lived with her 70-year-old mother, Annie Clooney Gunn, in Glasgow. On August 28, 1958, Bertha attacked Annie with a hatchet at their home, repeatedly striking her in the head. Bertha never denied murdering her mother, but she failed to fully explain why she committed such a monstrous act. Dr. Angus McNiven, medical superintendent of Glasgow Royal Mental Hospital, explained that Bertha had told him her relationship with her mother was good. He said, When I asked if she could give me an explanation of why she attacked her mother, she shook her head but made no reply. A second member of staff at the hospital Senior medical advisor Dr. William Flanagan managed to discover she was worried about the purchase of their home. Bertha had told Dr. Flanagan, I just wanted both of us to die because of it all. I just did that to her and then tried to gas myself. Dr. McNiven told Glasgow High Court in November 1958 he believed Bertha Gunn was insane when she carried out the attack and she was still insane. Bertha's defence counsel had put forward a plea of insanity. Staring straight ahead, Bertha Mary Gunn was detained indefinitely to receive mental health treatment. Jean Sutcliffe dressed her eight-month-old daughter Heidi to go for a walk on the high street. It wasn't far, just ten minutes by foot, and a trip Jean made frequently to run errands and pick up dinner for the family. Jean was married to Paul, a 44-year-old maths teacher. The couple were well-known and liked in the area and had three other children, Linda 15, David 14 and Annie 7. Despite running a busy household with four young children, Paul and Jean made time to help others, being active members of the local church where eldest daughter Linda sung in the choir. 
French-born Jean was said to assist their elderly and infirm neighbours, and Paul lent a helping hand to colleagues who needed his DIY skills. A downstairs room at the back of their five-bedroom house was used as a base for Jean's seamstress business in which she worked part-time, adjusting and making clothing, along with selling sewing supplies. Wednesday, April 30th, 1986 was a day like any other. Jean Sutcliffe left her home on the butts in Westbury, Wiltshire to take a morning stroll to the shops. Heidi was in her pram wearing a coat and a little pink hat. Shopping trips took longer with the baby. People would stop Jean to chat and often coo over the infant. Paul and Jean didn't plan on having a fourth child, but when they found out Jean was pregnant... The new baby was a welcome surprise and Paul said the couple were tickled pink. Jean's business had a lot of potential and the Sutcliffs wanted to expand. They were going to take a big leap, sell the house and move to Bristol. Paul was going to quit his teaching job and work alongside his wife selling sewing supplies. On April 29th, he rang and told a work colleague about his plans before handing in his notice. The next day at 4.10pm, Paul returned home from his job teaching at Kingdown Comprehensive School in Warminster. As Jean had been out with Heidi, their three other children were in the car as Paul would bring them back from school. The kids sprang out of the car ahead of their father bounding into the house. Linda the eldest was ahead and the first to go into her mother's workroom. What she saw that day was like something from a nightmare. Both her mother and her baby sister were dead, the scene bloody and violent. The pair were lying on their back. Heidi had a tea towel from the kitchen over her neck, her tiny arm outstretched towards her mother. Police responded quickly and took stock of the traumatising scene. There were no signs of forced entry. Detectives believe the murderer was familiar with Jean Sutcliffe and she probably invited them in. It appeared as though the weapon was sharp and heavy. Heidi received one wound to her throat that was deadly. It was believed Heidi was killed after her mother, who, from her injuries, was initially attacked from behind probably while bending down to get sewing supplies which her guests pretended they wanted to buy. As Jean fell backwards, the attack continued with at least ten more blows. She was mortally wounded and nearly decapitated. A post-mortem confirmed that Jean and Heidi had bled to death. It appeared as though the target was Jean Sutcliffe. Schoolteacher Paul Sutcliffe returned to his home in Butts Road, Westbury to find his 39-year-old wife Jean and his baby daughter Heidi lying dead in a back room. Wiltshire police have launched a massive inquiry. At least 60 officers are on the case. The Sutcliffes lived in a large detached house nestling into the hillside above Westbury. It's now being guarded by the police. They're desperately appealing for information. They want to hear from anyone who might have seen anything suspicious in Westbury at any time yesterday. 
police appealed to the public for information, hoping someone in the idyllic neighborhood would lead them to this highly dangerous killer. Detective Superintendent Tony Burden, the deputy head of the force's CID, says the killer must be caught. Mrs. Sutcliffe has injuries consistent with a violent attack. And it would seem at this early stage that she was struck with a blunt instrument. And she also has a very deep cut to the throat. It is a very violent crime and it's very, very important that we catch the person responsible as soon as we can. It's too early uh, in the day to make judgments, as I say, on the motive. Um, but we do need all the help we can get. It was entirely possible that the killer followed Jean and Heidi home from the shops. Detectives made an appeal, asking if anyone had seen the mother and daughter as they were out shopping on April 30th. The last known sighting of them up to this point was at 11.20am. They described Jean as 5 feet 2 inches tall, wearing a blue patterned dress with a blue jumper on the day of the murder. One witness said they had seen a woman, roughly 60 years old, outside the Sutcliffe's home on the afternoon of the attack. A request for this mystery woman to come forward was made by police. We want to locate this woman. We want to see her to eliminate her from the inquiries, a spokesperson said. Another witness said they'd seen an orange Morris Marina and a white pickup truck parked near the Sutcliffe's house on the day of the killing. An anonymous tip came in from an individual claiming they had seen a male figure standing in the kitchen early Wednesday afternoon. An e-fit of the man was composed and released to the public, but led nowhere. The person responsible may appear to members of uh, the family to which he or she belongs to be quite normal. But please, I would ask for full assistance in this case. Um, you can see that... Uh, we are treating it, quite obviously, very, very seriously, and we need um, every piece of assistance from members of the public that we can get. The community was shocked by the crime, and even more stunned a mother and infant were the victims. Making sense of it was difficult. Jean Sutcliffe had three other children. She gave up her teaching career as a religious affairs instructor to bring up the family. A close neighbour says everyone is staggered by what's happened. The first thing we, the first time I knew anything was when I, I heard what was going on outside. What were the people like? Um, just a normal, everyday average couple. That's all. Um, they were like everybody else in the area. It's a closely knit community. Uh, do you get the impression that um, that people in the road are very upset about what's happened? Well, it's a big shock to everybody, I should think, on the street, because, as I said, you know, close-knit community, and we don't usually get this sort of thing around here. After the murder, Paul Sutcliffe and his children were staying with friends. He was in shock, and for the first few days couldn't bear to return to the home he had shared with his now-deceased wife. On May 2nd, he was asked by detectives to check if anything had been stolen. The press were waiting outside, and after only ten minutes a very pale and shaken Paul Sutcliffe emerged and said, It was very distressing to go back into the house, and so far I have not been into the sewing room where the murder happened. It's impossible to say whether we are going to continue to live here. We are all devastated, the children particularly. 
When asked by the press if he thought he knew who carried out the attacks on his wife and daughter, Paul Sutcliffe said he had no idea at all. He then went on appealing for witnesses and stated, if anyone saw anything suspicious, unusual or even very ordinary that might help the police, please contact them. He was asked if he was going to return to work and he responded, I will have to face a classroom of students at some stage. Paul Sutcliffe was the first person to be looked at by police, but his entire day had been accounted for at a busy school, so he was no longer a suspect. Detectives dug further into the lives of Jean and Paul and found they were both faithful in their marriage, so the investigators could rule out a disgruntled lover. No feuds with friends or neighbours simmered to boiling point in the background. The Sutcliffes were just as they appeared to be, a happy family with no skeletons in the closet. Investigators didn't have much to go on, but the evidence seemed to point to someone Jean knew. Determined, officers continued to quiz Paul, unpicking every relationship in his life. Question marks were put over the heads of a few people, and a surprising person piqued their interest. Heather Arnold, a 50-year-old maths teacher who worked in the same department as Paul Sutcliffe at Kingdown Comprehensive. Heather Arnold, then Heather Hall, was brought up on an isolated farm on the picturesque moors near Blanchland in Northumberland. Born in May 1936, she was the first of two daughters to parents Arthur Leslie Hall and Margaret Ann. After she left school, she went to teach a training college and later met her husband, Captain John Arnold. His job in the RAF meant the couple had to move frequently, settling where his career took him. They married in Hong Kong and would soon become parents to their only child, Jane. In time, they came back to England and Heather Arnold found employment at Kingdown School in 1973. Paul Sutcliffe became a colleague in the maths department two years later. In the early 80s, the Arnold's marriage collapsed. After their daughter Jane returned from college, she married a fellow solicitor and a few years later moved away. Now alone, Heather Arnold wanted to downsize and upon the suggestion from her colleague's wife Jean, she purchased a large bungalow a short walking distance from the Sutcliffe's home. Paul recognised Heather was going through a massive upheaval in her life and offered her friendly support and even helped her with some DIY jobs in her new home. The colleagues had a great working relationship and worked successfully together in the maths department on a project to introduce computers to Kingdown Comprehensive. Heather Arnold had even been a dinner guest at Paul and Jean's home, where she would buy haberdasheries from their business. Investigators were suspicious. With Heather Arnold's small frame, short grey hair and large glasses, she could very well have been the 60-year-old woman someone had spotted near the house on the day of the murders. She had not been in school since April 27th as she complained of a throat infection. In a witness statement which Heather Arnold made to the police at about 6pm on Thursday, May 1st, 
she gave a detailed account of how she had spent the previous day. She said, At approximately 8.35 on Wednesday the 30th of April 1986, I left home to go into Westbury Town. I had to tax my car so I left home early to be at the post office as soon as it opened. It was a pleasant morning so I decided to walk up Orchard Road along the butts and down Snapper Snipes into town. I had never walked this way before but wanted to see what Snapper Snipes was like. As I walked along the butts I recall glancing up the footpath that leads to Paul Sutcliffe's house. I could not see the house. I arrived at the post office just as it was opening. I then realised that I did not have my insurance certificate so I could not obtain my vehicle excise licence. I walked back home again, had a cup of coffee and read the newspaper. I then went back into town to visit the post office again to obtain my vehicle excise licence. I walked down Orchard Road directly to town. I went to the post office and the sewing shop opposite Maristow Street for a reel of thread. On my way home I met a neighbour Mrs Craft. I recall looking at my watch while talking to her and noted the time was 10 o'clock. I returned home a few minutes later. I did not go out again that day except to work in the garden. At about 6.15 on Wednesday I telephoned my daughter as it was her wedding anniversary. At about 8.30 there was a knock on the door. When I answered it, I saw my neighbour Dennis Craft stood there. I invited him in and before we could speak the doorbell rang again. When I answered it, I saw a fellow teacher Roger Lucas stood there. I invited him in also. They had both come to tell me about Jean and Heidi Sutcliffe's death. I was obviously very shocked and went to Dennis Craft's house where I had a glass of brandy. I returned home at about 10.30 accompanied by Dennis Craft. I then went to bed. Although Paul Sutcliffe and I shared an interest in our work and computer hobbies, we have never had an affair together. Paul is a great family man and would never have hurt his family. At no time did we ever discuss having an affair with each other. We have never been anything but friends and colleagues. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It didn't occur to Paul that Heather Arnold could be the one responsible for his wife and child's death. The closest he had been with Heather was putting a sympathetic arm on his colleague's shoulder when she was going through a divorce. There was nothing he picked up on that suggested she thought of him as anything other than a friend and colleague, but detectives were now asking, do you think she fancies you? When Paul thought about it, a few odd things came to mind. The night before the murders, the colleague that Paul Sutcliffe called to give the heads up that he was leaving his teaching position and moving away was Heather Arnold. Paul also recalled an incident that Jean told him about a few months prior to her death. Jean had pushed Heidi in her pram to the shops as she normally did. She saw Heather Arnold. Jean greeted the familiar face with a hello, but Heather just looked at her blankly and walked off. Another thing that gave him pause was after the loss of Jean and Heidi. Paul and his family received many cards and floral tributes from grieving friends, neighbours and colleagues, but nothing amongst the well wishes came from Heather. Police visited Heather Arnold on May 5th and asked that she hand over the clothes she had been wearing on the day Jean and Heidi had died an Aaron sweater, and a pair of trousers. Her daughter and son-in-law were spending that bank holiday with Heather and heard her say, they won't find anything but soap suds. When Heather knocked at the Sutcliffe's front door on the afternoon of April 30th, 1986, Jean probably didn't think much of letting Paul's colleague in and taking her to the workroom in the back of the house to purchase some sewing supplies. Both women were slight in build, but Heather had the upper hand when she attacked her victim from behind, rendering Jean unable to defend herself and her baby. On Tuesday, May 6th, Heather Arnold was at home in the garage. A 12-inch axe with a painted red wooden handle was in her hands. She had to dispose of it. Using a saw, she cut the handle into three pieces, ignited a camping stove and threw the wooden handle onto the fire. It didn't disintegrate into a pile of dusty ash like she hoped. The three chunks just sat there charred and blackened. The flames of the camping stove weren't hot enough, but she couldn't dispose of the axe in the same house where her daughter and son-in-law were staying. She put the head of the axe into her handbag, and the wood was bundled up and put into the bottom of a plastic bag, hidden amongst general household rubbish that included chicken bones and yoghurt cartons. Today was refuse collection day. 
the evidence would be thrown into the jaws of a rubbish truck, splintered into tiny pieces and never seen again. No murder weapon had been found within or near the Sutcliffe's house despite officers combing the area. Detectives felt the killer could have been holding on to the murder weapon, and if they were, they would be desperate to get rid of it. If the killer were local, today was bin collection day in Westbury. Three police officers, Mark Herbert, Alan Strike and Bob Richards, donned refuse collectors overalls and rode along in the refuse truck. They planned to sift through the rubbish of each of their suspects. As the truck pulled up to her bungalow, Heather Arnold came out of her house holding a refuse bag. One of the policemen met her and said, I'll take that, love. He threw it into the back of the truck without turning on the crusher and drove off. Something about the men didn't seem right. A Westbury resident later said the new binman looked too scruffy compared to the regular refuse collectors. Heather's daughter Jane convinced her mother that perhaps she should have a break away from Westbury and spend some time with her and her husband. Heather agreed and they drove the near 150 miles to her daughter's home in Stone Stafford. Before they left, Heather had removed the axe head from her handbag, wrapped it in tissue paper and put it into the waistband of her skirt. In the sanctuary of her daughter's home, she broke down and brandished the axe head. She told Jane that she had found it in her garage, but claimed she didn't know where it came from. She looked her daughter in the eyes and said, I'm sure the police think I've done it. Jane tried to console her mother, who then said, I didn't do it, Jane. As Jane was a solicitor, she knew she needed to give the accent to the authorities, so asked her husband, Glyn Buckley, to call the police. On the drive back to the station in Wiltshire, Heather Arnold was accompanied by two officers, Tom Fessy and Caroline Enright. During the journey, Heather Arnold broke down weeping in the back seat. Officers heard her say her daughter wouldn't understand, and when asked what she meant, Heather replied, What I did. She spoke to Tom Fessy, and at one point confessed to visiting the Sutcliffe's home on April 30th, before she went to the post office. Fessy asked, Did you have anything with you at the time? In reference to the axe, she responded, Yes, that chopper I cut up. As she continued talking to the officers, she did not say exactly what happened in the house, though told them she washed her clothes and the axe with hot water. She was asked, Why did you kill them, Heather? Heather Arnold replied, I don't know. I just did it. Don't ask me why. I don't know. Was it hate for Jean or love for Paul or what? Heather responded, A bit of both, I suppose. Hate is too strong a word. When she arrived at Trowbridge Police Station, Heather was shown a written version of the questions she was asked and signed her name next to each of her answers. The next day she retracted her confession and stuck with the excuse that she couldn't remember what happened. At Trowbridge Magistrates Court, 
Heather Arnold was remanded in custody and remained at Puckle Church Prison until the trial. A trial began the following year at the start of April. The murder of Jean and Heidi Sutcliffe, a defenceless infant, understandably sparked anger and outrage from the public. Approximately 150 people waited outside Bristol Court for Heather Arnold to arrive. The van transporting her was pelted with coins, rotten oranges and dog food. Heather Arnold of Orchard Road in Westbury, Wiltshire denied murdering Jean and Heidi Sutcliffe. Demure, with a purple bow tying back her hair, she stared at the floor and claimed to have no recollection of the murder. She gave her evidence confidently and clearly. Heather recounted her day, following the same account she gave police initially. She had renewed her vehicle excise license at the Westbury Post Office, and the assistant at the sewing shop remembered serving a lady that matched Heather Arnold's description. Her neighbour also confirmed she had spoken to Anne that morning. Heather told the court how she panicked when she discovered an axe that she did not recognise in her garage. She said, I had no knowledge of it, where it had come from, and what it was doing there. She said cutting up the axe handle with a saw was an automatic response, and after she disposed of the charred pieces in a refuse bag, she didn't recall where she put the axe head. Heather said she only realised she had it when she found the axe head in a handbag later. James Black QC, Heather Arnold's counsel, asked her why she had panicked. She replied, I had been interviewed at some length no fewer than three times. I had personal clothing taken away. I was very distressed about the whole ghastly business. She said on the way back from her daughters to the station, officers spoke to her constantly, and it was only when she got back to Wiltshire and was placed in a holding cell that they informed her that they had taken down the main points of her confession. When describing the actions of one of the officers, she said, He put an open notebook on my knee and pointed at a place where I should sign. I certainly didn't appreciate what I was signing. The lighting in the cell was very dim and I could not have read what had been written. Heather Arnold, however, did agree that she had signed the confession statement around 18 times. On her behalf, James Black QC said it was a case of who did it. He told the court there wasn't a single piece of evidence found to link the ex-maths teacher to the murders. No blood on her clothes, no fingerprints discovered at the scene. Attention was placed on the man, simply described as foreign, seen in the vicinity of the Sutcliffe's home on the day before the murders. Dr Wells, an experienced police surgeon, examined Heather after she had been arrested and concluded she was not psychologically ill. He said, She was quiet. Her answers were short but accurate. I was not surprised that she was a teacher by her answers. She was concise, but she would sooner not have answered. She was terse and tense. She was not clinically shocked, but she was shaken and tense. David Elfer QC prosecuting said Defence Counsel James Black UC had been selective with the evidence he put forward. 
The prosecutor described Heather Arnold as a lonely individual that came to depend on the kindness and friendship of Paul Sutcliffe. The red paint from the handle of the axe was found on the charred pieces collected from Heather Arnold's rubbish. Red paint flecks were found in her car and damningly on the body of Jean Sutcliffe. On the eighth day of the trial, David Elphick QC said that Heather Arnold had been afflicted with massive gaps in her memory for the first time in her life. He encouraged the jury to make their own judgments and said, I've used the words murders and murderer intentionally during this trial because we suggest there is no other verdict in this case. This is not a question of who done it. This is a she did it. A forensic scientist Dr. John Whiteside told the court that the axe head had been washed in extremely hot water before it had been taken into evidence, hindering any forensic blood test to be completed, though blood had been found on the handle. The sewing room where the bodies were found had a lot of blood spatter due to the ferocity of the attack. Dr. Whiteside said they were caused as a direct result of blows to Mrs. Sutcliffe. The implement itself would be bloodstained. No blood was found on the trousers and Darren jumper Heather Arnold was thought to be wearing that day. Prosecutor David L. Fakusi pointed out like the axe, they could have been washed to remove any staining. Jane Buckley, Heather Arnold's daughter, told the court that she had been present when her mother removed the murder weapon from the waistband of her skirt. During the trial, no clear motive for the murders was put forward, but the suggestion was Heather Arnold was triggered when Paul Sutcliffe, the object of her obsession, said he was leaving his position at Kingdown Comprehensive School and moving to Bristol. After the evidence was presented, the 11-member jury couldn't agree on a verdict, so spent the night in a Bristol hotel. One member of the jury was unable to continue due to a back injury, so had been discharged. The next day, on April 15, 1987, following seven and a half hours of deliberation, the jury unanimously found Heather Arnold guilty of the murders of Jean and Heidi Sutcliffe. As the first verdict was read aloud, Heather was crying. When the second guilty verdict was called, she collapsed and had to be supported by prison officials. The judge, Mr Justice Henry, said, The jury has rightly convicted you of these two terrible murders, murders which had shocked and horrified the community. Paul Sutcliffe, who sat with his sister-in-law throughout the trial, spoke about Heather Arnold and regretted giving her a shoulder to cry on after the breakup from her husband. He told the press, I think there must have been some form of envy. I have a feeling that Mrs Arnold had a rather empty existence. So where are we now? Heather Arnold had to spend the first part of her sentence in Durham Prison, isolated for her own safety. As she had murdered a baby, she would be a target for other inmates, 
While receiving treatment at Broadmoor, she confessed to hating Jean Sutcliffe. She saw Jean as an obstacle between her and the relationship she wanted with Paul Sutcliffe. Heather spoke about Jean Sutcliffe to a doctor. A report on their conversation written during 1992 read, In one of the therapy sessions she admitted that she had hated her victim and that she felt glad she's dead. She regarded the killing of the baby as a different matter which she regretted and about which she became tearful. She conceded also that she had been looking at the possibility of getting closer to Paul for at least two years and had been thinking that Paul, the family and herself would all be better off with Jean dead. Six years after her conviction, a consultant psychiatrist advised Heather Arnold to appeal her sentence on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Three years later, her case was heard at the Court of Appeal. The goal was to change the murder charge to manslaughter due to diminished responsibility, and failing that, a retrial. The three judges in attendance denied her appeal. No significant psychological abnormality was found before her original trial. Along with Mr Justice Butterfield and Mr Justice Laws, Lord Justice Hobhouse passed judgement and said, She has failed to persuade us that it is necessary or expedient to admit any further evidence. She was an intelligent and articulate woman. She was in a fit state to take decisions about her defence and to instruct her lawyers. The community was shocked by the callous murders of Jean and Heidi Sutcliffe and rumours still lurk on the internet, questioning the true nature of Paul Sutcliffe and Heather Arnold's relationship. The ripple effect of the murders is still felt today. A former pupil of Heather Arnold's remembered his primary school teacher as cruel and abusive to students. Paul Sutcliffe and his three children remained living in the house at Westbury for at least a few years after the murders. Following the attack, Jean and Heidi Sutcliffe's funeral was held on June 6, 1986. 350 mourners attended the ceremony. Mother and child shared a coffin. Their headstone reads, In loving memory of Jean Sutcliffe, aged 39 years, so deeply missed and Heidi, eight months, who brought such joy. Both murdered, 30th of April, 1986. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.